the ways that those things carry on with those children for the rest of their lives is so substantial that I think it's worth everybody recognizing that in this more vulnerable developmental stage, kids really need to be treated well and, and to be treated in accordance with their human dignity and their rights. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Today's conversation covers a topic very close to my own heart, and one that's formed a core part of my professional career, children living in orphanages. The evidence tells us that growing up in an orphanage is inherently harmful, yet it's still happening at scale, with millions of children globally stuck in institutions. A key fact that I want to continue to drive home is that the idea that there are millions of orphans in orphanages waiting for the love, care and attention of well-meaning foreigners is a myth. These children have families. In fact, anywhere between 70 and 90% of them have one or more living parents who, with support, would be willing and able to care for them. Orphanages are harmful and result in the unnecessary separation of children from their families. It's a complex and often emotive issue. There's no single driver for children ending up in orphanages. There are many. Trafficking, exploitation, poverty, abuse, neglect, child protection systems that don't function, and the insatiable desire to do good among those more fortunate those well-meaning people. I invited Brandon Stiver onto today's episode to unpack these issues with me. Brandon is the Community of Practice Director at an organisation called One Million Home, which works to shift mindsets about orphan care and scale community-based care models that reunite children with families and eradicate practices that lead to family separation. Brandon is also an evangelical Christian who was called to work in an orphanage in Tanzania, where he and his wife ended up adopting a child. Brandon and I have a wide-ranging and at times challenging conversation about the intersections between evangelism, missionary work, colonialism, race, adoption, and orphan care. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Brandon. Thanks so much, Lee. It's awesome to be with you. I'm very happy to have you. Brandon, I want to ask you something I ask everyone. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this question uh, as I've gotten to listen to some of your other podcasts. And I think that the idea of what does it mean to me personally, almost uh, there, there assumes some subjectivity there. And yet some of the values that we often talk about just as humans are sometimes rather objective. So when I think about doing good. I think about showing kindness. I think about including other people, inviting other people. I think about providing for other people, pursuing justice. Yeah, when I think of doing good, I think of a list of different values that I think as humans, hopefully we could gather around. And and I know that there's (laughs) a lot of different uh, kind of paths and things that People could say like, well, this is what it looks like to pursue justice. And somebody else might say something else, but there's some sort of value out there that is potentially a little bit beyond a single person to fully comprehend. But I think it recognizes that, yeah, there is something called kindness and we should pursue that. There is something called justice and we should pursue that. There is something called peace and tranquility. And those are things that we should pursue. We may not always get it right, but we'll do what we can. So that's, that's what I think of when I think of doing good. 
how would you say that you express doing good in your own daily life? Well, as much as I would like to say that I do it all the time, I also recognize my own flaws and mistakes. And, you know, doing good, I think, foremost, that should happen, you know, within our own family, within our own immediate personal sphere. Remember a quote, and I'll probably mess it up, so you have to forgive me, but from Mother Teresa, where she said, somebody asked her, you know, how can you change the world? And her response was, go home and love your family. I really agree with that sentiment, and it's, it would be hard to disagree with Mother Teresa, who was uh, obviously just such an incredible human being. So I think it has to start there. And you know, it's also within those relationships that it can be the most challenging because they're intimate, because those people that you're closest to are also the people that see your shortcomings most closely at hand. So I think it starts there. And then kind of out from there. I think that vocationally, there should be opportunity, whether somebody's working in the nonprofit sector like I do, or whether it's somebody working in the for-profit sector or what have you, um, there should be a space where we're thinking through what we do ethically and that we're also saying whatever it is that is at the end of my efforts, hopefully some good will take place. And obviously not everybody uses that lens, but, but that's at least what it would mean to me and to the things that I've applied my hand to. How would you say that your concept of doing good has evolved over time? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that there's a maturation process. I think that if you were to go back to me, say, 12 to 15 years ago when I was in university, I was kind of having this moment of being shown tremendous needs in the world and kind of having an awakening that there was an opportunity to do good, you know, to, to use the phrase that we're talking about today. And, and being a man of faith, you know, also looking at that through the lens of my relationship with God. It's funny because when, and I know that we'll get into this, but, you know, when I was first having some of those initial inclinations, I actually felt that it was God calling me to go run an orphanage in Africa. And obviously, you know, you and I have gotten a chance to talk a couple times and get to know each other a little bit, but there was a maturation piece there that what I assumed was going to be doing good, while may have been good intention, was actually a little off base or just not necessarily what the people You know, I don't know. I'm not crazy about the word beneficiaries, but, you know, like the people at the end of these efforts, what it meant for them, you know, maybe wasn't as good. So there has to be a maturation and there has to be a journey that takes place so that good intentions will hopefully over time, if we're really being honest with ourselves, will mature into something that is actually beneficial for somebody more than just myself, you know, hopefully also beneficial for um, the people that I'm seeking to be a blessing to and to help out. Brandon. I do want to take you back to that time. You might have been called to to set up an orphanage in Africa, but you did end up going to Africa, to Tanzania, and you were working in an orphanage there. How did you end up there and, and what was the decision-making process for you around getting there? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a story that's too dissimilar from a lot of other people, especially young evangelicals, as I was, as I am, only not quite as young. You know, the process looked like I was going to a Christian university in Southern California. I'm a Californian and felt this inclination from God to go and to serve. There's obviously a theology around caring for vulnerable peoples from my own faith tradition. But really, when I first got that inclination and that calling, I just kind of pursued the things that that kind of come standard. So I looked at well, what short-term missions opportunities are being coordinated at my university, you know, and then I ended up getting 
accepted. It, I, I mean, I do think it was divine coordination, but at the time it just kind of seemed random. It was like, well, there's Mozambique or there's Tanzania. Which one will I go to? I'll apply to both, see who I get accepted for, you know, those kind of things. And then end up going to Tanzania in that preparation time. I became a child sponsor. There's a whole lot there to unpack around child sponsorship for a whole other episode. <laughs> that would be a whole other episode. <laughs> So, you know, just kind of some of those traditional things. So, so yeah, I got accepted to a short-term missions trip, went to an orphanage, did the whole orphanage tourism, volunteering kind of thing for a couple of weeks. I already had a relationship with the or- organization at that point because I was a child sponsor. Just kind of felt in those two weeks of being there that it was kind of confirming to me that that particular city was where I was supposed to be to whatever degree you, somebody can confirm that. But to me personally, it seemed like the right course of action. So I came back and to the States and kind of started to share that with other people and said, you know, this is what I feel God has been calling me to, what he's been speaking to me about for the last year. And, uh, you know, I want to take steps forward in this. I had graduated from university at that point. And I wasn't going to go back and get credentialed. I thought I was going to become a teacher. I had this desire to work with kids. I had volunteered at my church and, you know, done all those kinds of things to, to support and work with kids and families. But I ended up a year and a half after that, I did one two-month internship. And during that internship in 2009, got hired at the children's home. And then, it, you know, it's an interesting thing because then I moved there and I was only 23 And we can talk about savior mentality. I know I had one, (laughs) to be totally honest. And at the same time, it's almost kind of discouraging in a way to think like, I'm 23. I graduated from college just a year and a half ago. Am I really peaking right now? Or could this actually just be one step on a longer journey, you know, of, of growing and maturation? So those were kind of the points that kind of led me to working at the Children's Home, which I ended up working at for about two and a half years. And it was also a faith based organization. You obviously think differently about childcare in an institutional context now, but back then you you must have thought it was the right way to help. What moment or what did it take for you to start to recognize the harms that were being caused to these children by this form of care? You know, there's definitely layers to that. Halfway through my time working at that children's home, my wife and I got married. So we got married in 2011. It was not really advisable. You know, working cross-culturally can be a challenge. Missions work, working with vulnerable children, those things can be a challenge. First year of marriage is traditionally a challenge. And we decided that we were going to do all of those things uh, simultaneously. So uh, not necessarily advisable. We got pregnant halfway through that second term there. And um, we moved back to the States. There was no issues or anything necessarily like with leadership or anything like that. We moved back because we were in way over our heads and now we were expecting as well. So I would say that the moment that was most profound and really kind of got me going was after we had already stopped working at the children's home. Um, There were some concerns during that time, but the biggest light bulb moment, if you will, was when I actually had my own child and my daughter was born and recognizing this is profoundly different from my relationship with the kids back at the children's home. And I had a romanticized view of myself, to be totally honest, and a romanticized view of what those relationships were. And then when I was like, oh, this is what it actually means to be a father. This is what it actually means to 
form an attachment. This is what it actually means to love a child. Like that was the light bulb moment. And now we're getting into the mid 2000s where some of the earlier like kind of forerunners and again, evangelical churches, even to this day, you know, largely kind of hold up the orphanage model. And, you know, people like me are working to say, hey, let's redo this. But in the mid 2000s, there were starting to be some people that were coming out from the evangelical circles that were saying there could be a better way. And as I started to read some works on that, you know, what does community-based services, what does family-based care look like? You know, I started to recognize, oh, yeah. And then it kind of gave me more context when I looked back on those two and a half years of working at the children's home and, you know, four years of being connected there as a supporter or staff member and started to see like, oh, yeah, I really had some unhealthy emotional attachments. These kids... They really do have family. Like, you know, you start to think through those things retroactively. So yeah, the biggest moment was when I became a father myself, but then there's kind of been layer after layer to get me to where I am today in 2021. I'm interested in understanding how you began to reconcile that recognition that something needed to change or that this wasn't perhaps the right way with the dominant theological approach to caring for orphans and widows and vulnerable people. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was even a theological approach that that most of these people are taking. It's more of just a practical approach. So I think that if you get into scriptural theology, and I could give you a run through. So I lived in Tanzania for about eight years altogether. So the majority of that time, we were actually running a community and family-based advocacy and care program where we were providing social services, reunifying kids or preserving families to stay together, connecting them with community services. But then our bigger thing was community advocacy, largely within the faith-based community. And one of the things that I did within that, you know, for a guy like me, you can build relationship with these different pastors, all amazing men and women. And, you know, I could go and I could preach at a church and find like 30 to 40 people in there, but they're largely you know, vulnerable people, and they're already doing it. They're already caring for orphans and widows, like especially in an African context, which is very much more collectivist, they're already doing a lot of it. So it's really just a, a, a way to kind of encourage them. But one of the things that I did was actually write a resource going through eight different scriptures that really, in my view, promote family-based care from a theological perspective. Now, that's the theological approach. And that's, that's my take on theology. Unfortunately, what a lot of people from my own faith background will do is they will take a scripture, potentially take it out of context, not really do the deeper exegetical work to kind of say, well, what does this really mean? And what does this mean in, in light of the larger breadth of scripture as a whole? And just kind of have like a a paper thin understanding, but then kind of build these practicalities that are just really really ginormous, you know? So you take, for example, something like James 127. You'll hear lots of Christians talk about James 127, and, and it's true and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. You've probably heard that. I, know. I have, yes. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things is there is, I don't even know, even though it's kind of the go-to, it's not my go-to verse, but, you know, it's God's word, and I think there's a lot of value in it. I don't know how you actually get from that where God's highlighting a vulnerable family widows and orphans, especially when we look at, you know, we say, oh, there's 140 million orphans in the world. And most of those are single orphans, meaning that they already have family and they're already living with family. So it's actually more of a theological jump to 
say, well, actually what we're going to do is facilitate separation. I would be of the mind that it's not even a theological approach. It's just practicality. And, and unfortunately, I think it's somewhat in the human condition to essentially outsource compassion work. It's a lot harder to come alongside a vulnerable mother with her child and actually build relationship with them and, and actually get to know them and actually see what they need and in what ways are they really expressing their human dignity in beautiful ways and what ways are they kind of messy? You know, it's actually harder when you're working at that more intimate level, but that's who I see Jesus to be. He got into people's mess with them, but it's a lot easier if we say, well, actually, we're going to care for orphans by putting them into this big building. And again, those things can be done with the best of intentions, but I think a more robust theological approach and a more effective approach is to actually help those kids get into the family. And there's a number of scriptures that I believe actually support that. So I actually wish that my brothers and sisters from within the faith would think about that more theologically. And a lot of the work that I've done has been to actually kind of highlight some of those things so that hopefully we get the theological understanding, which will then inform effective approaches to actually caring for kids. I want to talk about this idea of good versus bad orphanages, because often people when they're confronted with information around how orphanages can harm children, they say, oh, yeah, I understand there are bad orphanages, but not my orphanage. My orphanage that I volunteered in, that's a good one. And my response is always that there is no such thing as a good orphanage. But I want to know what you think. I would agree. I know he didn't say it initially, but I heard Krish Kandaya say this in a meeting before He's quoting somebody else, and forgive me for not knowing who it is, but he said that there are better and worse orphanages, but there are no good orphanages. And I think that that might be a a little bit more helpful because it's true. Like I've been in some children's homes that are just decrepit, you know, and just really huge child protection issues, huge safeguarding concerns, corrupt. Those ones are the worst of the worst. But even the ones that are actually addressing child protection issues or they've tried to decentralize their care to some degree, even those ones still have a ways to go. So I would, I would agree with that assessment. I would not say that there are good orphanages. At the same time, I would say that there are orphanages out there that are recognizing the need for family care, but they don't know how to get it there. So I was actually on the phone earlier today with a woman in Zimbabwe, and she's also faith-based. I work for One Million Home. We're a public charity with religious values, but we work with both faith-based and non-faith-based. And this particular individual, she was coming from a faith-based perspective. They have about 50 kids at a children's home in Zimbabwe, and they tried unification, and it didn't go well. And now, a few years later, they're kind of like, well, how do we do this, right? So there are orphanages out there that are recognizing the need to do it, but they don't know how. And I think what the sector itself is bringing to bear is this need for transition support services, for contextualized good and better practice within country to kind of help those organizations transition. So I would say that there are children's homes that are hopefully taking up a new trajectory, but at the same time, it takes time to get there, especially if you want to do it safely. And that's kind of where we are also just as an organization, are positioning ourselves is to say, how can we get you connected with other organizations that have already done it in your country so that they can guide you? Because hopefully if somebody continues to follow their good intentions, they'll realize that it's also good for kids to grow up in family. Have you heard of the term, the orphan industrial complex? (laughs) I have heard of that term, yes. 
Western demand for humanitarian experiences with orphans, which engages children in developing countries directly with international capital, so resources, people and money, through amateur humanitarianism in developing countries whose children are targeted for rescue, often by evangelist communities. I'm interested in understanding how you think evangelism interacts with this concept around childcare and orphan care? Yeah, that's a good question. And as I had alluded to earlier, as an evangelical, and you know, I mean that in strictly theological, nothing political in, in how I would describe myself as an evangelical, as I, as I had described to you in, in one of my previous emails to you. In theological terms, I am an evangelical. I am not a right-wing whatever you think. But at any rate, evangelical churches have largely been a part of that orphanage industrial complex. To quote a non-religious scholar by the name of Method Man from the Wu-Tang Clan, cash rules everything around me. And when I think about that, it's actually, you know, working in development work in general, you have to kind of follow the money. And when we think about orphanages, they are placed in some of the poorest countries in the world and run as some of the most lucrative businesses. And the church both national churches within the country as well as western churches from you know the the us or europe or wherever absolutely have been a, a huge component within that complex and i think it's something that that needs to change you know when i think about the children's home that i used to work at when i was there there was 26 children in the children's home and the operation was about half a million dollars a year and if you were to break that down that's over sixteen thousand dollars per kid in an East African country that's among the poorest in the world, right? And, and here I am living on the West Coast. I got four kids. I don't spend 16000 I couldn't. Like that would exceed just in and of itself, you know? So yeah, there's a lot to that. So what I'm wondering is, and this isn't just restricted to evangelist communities or communities of faith that are interacting with this sector, it's, it's even organizations that are advocacy organizations against institutional care and pro-family care, but it's all contributing to the narrative of the myth that there are all these children out here that still need rescuing. And I think that's what this, this industrial complex is about. It's the false narrative that we over here in so-called developed countries or the global north need to go and rescue or save these children in whichever way we're choosing to do it, whether it is through orphanage care or whether it is through dismantling that system and reunifying. Yeah, yeah, no, and and that's a really good question. And even some of the terminology that you use there, you know, you use the word rescue. It's funny because we work as a community of practice where we have multiple agencies that come along. Everybody respects each other's autonomy, but also recognize that we have something to learn from one another or ways to encourage better practice. Some of our organizations are multinational. Some of them are strictly local. So when you kind of take a survey of these various organizations that we're working alongside, they would each have different answers. So even when we think about the word rescue, we have one partner who actually uses that word as a part of like their go-to kind of terminology. And another one that used to have that in their name of their field operation. And now they've totally changed it because they're like, no, that's actually really not, doesn't work for us. So, so, you know, there's a lot of nuance in there. As far as like more broadly as 1 million home specifically, party to the complex, I would say it's kind of complicated. (laughs) The fact of the matter is we live in a globalized world. 
And there's really no way around that. It, it just kind of is what it is. Now, what I would say, you know, with us specifically focusing on care reform, transition support services, as we have worked with multinational organizations, meaning that they typically have an arm either in the US or the UK, and then also an arm in whatever their country of operation is. What we have found is the best organizations are the ones that really look to indigenous solutions and really work with a national staff that are doing the work well. Now the funding is still coming from the West. You work in development. I work in development. I, I, you know, you pay for your kids' food and shelter the same way I do, you know? So I think we're all party to it in one way or the other. I don't know. It's a complex answer though. I'd have to actually think about that more. Absolutely. And and you're right. You're raising a very good point around the development industrial complex, the aid industrial complex that we are all playing a part of. And and I think the, the orphan industrial complex sits within that. And it's good to question these things. It's good to, I guess, reflect on what, even though seems good, sometimes is actually perpetuating a harmful system. Which brings me to my next question. And I want to explore the concept of race and how it comes into evangelism, especially in, you know, overseas mission trips and things like that. There's a really long history of patriarchal thinking regarding Africa, slavery, colonialism, early missioning. This was all based on thinking about the hierarchies of race and the thought that bringing civilization and commerce and Christianity would make African people more like white people and that the closer they got to a European culture, the better it would be for everybody. Isn't the modern missionary just an embodiment of these past ideals and isn't it still about race? That's a good question. I think, I think it would be for some people. I definitely see the ties. And certainly when you look through that historical lenses, you just uh, summarized very well. Unfortunately, some very poor expressions of Christianity, I think were expressed in those colonial times and that there are traditions where that still persists today. You know, another thing for us to think through now is that a lot of these, you know, areas like Tanzania, which is a third Christian, a third Muslim, and then a third mix of other things. Well, both Christianity and Islam didn't originate in East Africa you know, those types of things. So that kind of adds another wrinkle. And now we also just kind of from, you know, my perspective or what I see growing up on the West Coast of the United States and then serving in East Africa. And, you know, we kind of see the trajectory of, of our own religion to be at, at, at the most broad, which is just to say Christianity, which could include pr- Protestantism, Catholicism, evangelicalism. And really where the church itself is expanding is actually in the global South. And it doesn't even have anything necessarily to do with the work of Western missionaries. And the thing is, it was, it would be interesting because depending on who I was talking to, people, you know, people want to put other people into a box and they say, oh, because I know this about you, that's who you are. So with some people, they'd be like, oh, you work for a nonprofit. Oh, you work for a child welfare agency. Oh, you're a missionary or you're, you know, and you're just kind of whoever, you know, you are to that person. But, you know, if I were to say, like, to put my hat on as a missionary and even an evangelical, my focus wasn't on conversion, but I have many friends who that was a big part of what they did, you know, and I'm not one to say, like, oh, that's bad, because a lot of it has to do with building relationship. 
And I think relationship is really key. Relationship with one another, relationship to God. The two greatest commandments according to Jesus is to love God and to love other people. And sometimes in those processes of loving God and loving other people, you also share what it is about yourself, you know, and that, that makes you who you are. But at the same time, the historical lens and the modern iterations of that colonial piece, yeah, they're still very active for sure. But yet at the same time, we're engaging with more and more people that are people of color that are actually have much deeper and richer faith in the same God than, you know, American evangelicals or what have you. So, so it's, it's kind of this really interesting and complex kind of shift. I hope that kind of speaks to your question. It's a really good question. It's also very complex. Absolutely. And definitely not enough time to dig deeply into it. I am interested in one thing you said, though, about conversion. And you talked about a relationship, you know, that, that an important part of that was building a relationship. And instantly, the question that pops into my mind is, can you not build a relationship that is not premised on needing that other person to convert or, or having an ulterior motive for building that relationship? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there is this component where some of the people that I lived, worked with, became friends with were people of particularly the Muslim faith in Tanzania, just because there's more of them there. And there was never any ulterior motive. There's value in showing kindness and love to other people. And I can't say that monolithically, that's how evangelicals think or prepare themselves. You know, I am my own individual. But if those people came to understand Jesus the way that I do, or, but the thing is, they couldn't even, like, not in the very specific sense of it, you know, I think the person of Jesus is compelling. I think who he is is compelling and who I read from him to be in scripture, what I feel in my own spiritual walk, I find him to be just really compelling. And I would encourage anybody to read his teachings, you know, and, and just kind of say, what can you gather from this? And, and if they come to a new understanding of who he is, I think that's fantastic. But if they don't, I value them for who they are. And, and you know, it's like my neighbors. We moved to Tacoma, Washington last year. I'm not from this area. It's a new adventure for us. And we have just enjoyed getting to know our neighbors, most of whom are not believers. But, you know, I have my neighbor call me at four o'clock in the morning because he needs to rush to the hospital. You know, those types of things, those, those situations where you're just like, I get a chance to show love and kindness to another person right now. And I think that that speaks volumes. I want to kind of place the lens of vulnerability over that because having conversations, open conversations about Jesus and faith with adults who have similar power to you in in structures and communities is absolutely valid and, and being able to form their own opinion and their own place in those beliefs is valid. But when it comes to those conversations being had in the context of children from different, possibly different faiths originally, also vulnerable adults. And then you add a layer of the provision of food, education and shelter on top of that. That's when it becomes really, really tricky for me to accept that those conversations are ethical and, you know, that, that there is absolute free will in engaging in those conversations and, and potentially converting. Yeah, no, I, I, and your your uh, reservation is is uh, well founded, and sadly there are uh, issues of spiritual abuse, including in the types of things that you described. One of my mentors who worked quite extensively with street dwelling children in Latin America, 
in a child protection course that he was teaching, you know, discussed the need for faith-based organizations to actually include spiritual abuse as something within their own child protection policy. And I wholeheartedly agree because you don't want to have those kind of situations where you're saying, hey, we're rolling out here with the food support, but, you know, here's our spiel, raise your hand, you know, kind of thing. And the thing is, if you ask most evangelicals, to be honest, there's this uh, moment of kind of exhilaration at, a, at the moment of salvation or conversion. Myself, as a child, I raised my hand multiple times. The truth is that moment of conversion, that moment of like, yes, I'm saying yes to God, it really, it, it takes one time, you know, from my own faith, tradition and understanding. And yet I did it multiple times and there was no coercion. So all the more you have to be proactive to make sure that those situations uh, for faith-based organizations are not taking place. The services that are provided, the care that is given, those things ought to happen regardless of what the child decides. And then also to not put those kids in a situation where they're feeling coerced. And again, I can't say that like, oh, that's never happened before, Lee. What are you talking about? Like, of course that's happened. And it's totally, and it's totally unethical. And I don't think that that brings honor to, to who God is. We want to be about people that love children and love them for who they are. It makes me think of power though. And again, going back to that historical lens of colonialism and slavery and missionary work and foreign missionaries or evangelists going to Africa with the intention to see salvation, to save souls, to to convert. You're talking about vulnerable people, vulnerable communities, vulnerable children, and an inherent power structure that is cemented because of the legacy of colonialism. You're seen as a source of wealth and power in many cases. Again, that's where it gets tricky for me, where, yes, a child may have that moment of salvation, but what about all the stuff around it? What led to that moment that they're even there in the presence of foreign evangelists? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, for sure. If you think about Brenner's ecological systems theory, and you know you have that child there at the center and that child is interacting and they are making decisions um, based on who is within those specific microsystems and then you kind of pan out you get the mesosystem the exosystem the macrosystem and the chronosystem and it's complex you know and then the question also becomes you know for, for for a child like me i was raised by you know christian parents but there were also moments especially as i entered adolescence and early adulthood where I really had to make decisions for myself. And there's a lot with how does a person come to follow Christ? Like if I were to say like, who is a Christian? A Christian is somebody that has chosen to follow Jesus Christ and believes that he is the son of God and, and died and rose again. You know, so these are, these are our creeds, right? There's nothing in there really necessarily that says, well, you just sit there and you pray this particular prayer. You won't actually find that mode of conversion, if you will, or you won't even find the word conversion in scripture, you know? So some of these are kind of systems that have been created and people that are way smarter than me can kind of figure out, you know, what that looks like and, and how that came to be. But all the systems around that child are, they're very pertinent for sure. And, you know, if I'm talking with a Tanzanian who is a Christian, you know, I was speaking with a practitioner not too long ago. He's a Christian, a care reform advocate in Tanzania, and he's raising his children and he's raising them in the faith of their family, which is Christianity, which originated in the area of Palestine and went into Europe and then, you know, to other places. So 
it's complex. And I would never think to sidestep what you're bringing up about power structures, because I do think that that is a very important consideration. And, you know, I'm an American, so we've been talking about power structures, especially for the last year and a half since the George Floyd killing and talking about CRT and, and all of those things. And I think that there's a lot within those instruments for us to actually think through what are what are unhealthy power structures that we've created? What does white privilege look like? You know, and and as a person who is following a, a brown skinned messiah, <laughs> you know, what does that mean for me as as somebody of you know European descent? And what does that mean when I'm entering into a situation and I'm the mzungu with money? You know, like those types of things. So we have to be thinking about those things. And again, to me personally, the best solutions are what the indigenous population are bringing forward. Now, in regards to specifics around faith, they're also should be free to choose the faith that means the most to them. I've adopted as well. My son was unfortunately separated from his family for most of his childhood. We drew more connections with his biological family after the adoption and really built strong relationships there. And a lot of his family members are Muslims. His grandmother was not. She was a Christian, but a lot of them are Muslims. And I remember having a conversation with one of his cousins, and we're speaking in Swahili, but he says, it's hakiyake. It's their, it's their right to decide you know, for themselves. So, and that could even include somebody choosing a, a religion that probably didn't originate. You know, I grew up on the West Coast. Christianity didn't originate from here. But I found that expression as does somebody from another country. So, but those power structures are huge and something that everybody should consider. I want to explore this from a slightly different angle. In your work, you try to disband the myth of the millions of orphans needing homes around the world and needing our love and care. However, the narrative still pervades the evangelist community in particular and drives countless American missionaries to head overseas to, to work in orphanages. My question is, why Africa? Why Asia? Why the Pacific? Why not America? Why not at your southern border? Why not engage in domestic programs like Teach for America? There is all sorts of very complex problems and extreme poverty going on in America. So why not there? Why do you have to go overseas? Why do me specifically or like the evangelical community? The evangelical community that particularly has a preference for going to these countries. Yeah. I suppose a lot of it has to do with unspoken ambition and white savior type of complex. I do think that that's significant. Even if I could just be, you know, transparent about what led me as a 23-year-old, you know, in in all my naivety to be perfectly honest, into that type of situation, I know that I had kind of a unspoken view of myself and a lot of that kind of started to crumble around me when I realized I was just another person, you know, <laughs> like I wasn't, I wasn't Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela or, you know, like, like whoever, you know, I, I was, I was just another person. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that also has to do, you know, if we were to just kind of look over the last 15 years with the rise in social media and the drive, you know, around celebrity culture, us evangelicals, we have our own streams of that, you know, and there's a lot that's, that's kind of appealing. I don't know about you, Lee. I can definitely tell you I've had a profile picture of me holding, you know, a brown kid that's not my own. If I could just be that transparent and honest, and, and I don't think it's healthy. And I don't think I was respecting that child's right to an identity. 
and unfortunately, I was probably not the only person that had a picture with that particular kid. You know, it could have been actually hundreds of other people. So I, I think there's a lot to the emotional piece. I think when people from the church go on these short-term missions trips, they have this uh, emotional connection. I don't know about your story, but I know I had that. I had that feeling of, wow, I've done something significant. And even though it actually wasn't healthy, you can become addicted to those, you know, uh, chemicals running around in your brain. And, and now you feel like, oh, now I have this sense of purpose because I'm going to go, you know, minister to orphans in such and such country. So as far as why not the U.S., you know, it's actually kind of interesting. After I worked in Tanzania for several years, I moved back to California initially. It's where my wife and I are both from. And I ended up getting a job at a local child welfare agency and actually worked in the foster care system. We were a community-based organization, um, not faith-based. I networked with like people from like the Pride Foundation and, you know, so like people other in the community other than just churches, but it included churches. And, you know, I would speak at churches, preach the sermon or give an announcement, you know, at such and such church, hey, I'm Brandon from such and such agency, we're looking for foster parents, you know, give my whole spiel. And it was a lot easier to fundraise for programs in Africa, or to mobilize people to come and do short term mission trips than it was to say, hey, would you actually give of yourself? There's at-risk children and youth in our own community that are needing intensive services foster care while they are temporarily you know, or permanently separated from their families of origin. And that was like pulling teeth. I mean, it, I, was, I was working there for nine months and recruited you know, four or five foster parents, which was actually a high rate you know, compared for the agency. And yet at the same time, you'll find more evangelical foster parents than you would people from other areas and communities within the U.S. So it's a tough thing for sure. And why do you think you were faced with that challenge? Why, why don't people want to foster or contribute to the poverty and struggles in their own communities? I think it gets back to, and I don't typically use this word, but I'm finding myself using it for the second time in this conversation, and that's, and that's outsourcing. It is a lot easier to say, like, how are you caring for vulnerable kids? Oh, I'm caring by donating to an orphanage. And we take a two-week trip every other year to go visit those kids and to say, like, that's what I do. When you're bringing in a child directly into your home that CPS has already said, like, hey, this kid needs a protective placement for the time being, we're working with the parents or, you know, whatever that situation is, would you, would you open up your home to this kid for the next six to 12 months? Then you're like, right, face to face. And it takes a lot more out of you. And in one scenario, you're actually giving money and you're feeding into that uh, orphanage industrial complex, as we were just discussing. And in the other one, the California government is actually going to give you money so that you can take care of this kid. And you people are like, no, I don't want that, right? Because of how intensive it is. And yet again, my understanding of faith and of reading scripture and seeing who Jesus is, he was actually getting into it with people that were coming from rough positions, rough spots, and, and actually advocating on their behalf. You know, so the, the charge that Jesus was always getting was, well, why do you hang out with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, you know, kind of thing? Why, why are you keeping that company, you know? And he would tell people, it's not the well, you know, and he was being tongue in cheek himself. It's not the well that need a doctor, but the sick. And the idea was actually everybody needs him, but only the people that are actually like reaching out to him, that's who he would even reach back to in a way, you know? So I think that that's 
that that's a big reason why. And, you know, you also mentioned the situation at the southern border. I think that there's a lot there, um, especially if we're continuing the conversation around family separation, where the U.S. government actually instituted policies that essentially reneged on international agreements that we had already made, um, especially during the Cold War and such as the UN Protocol on Refugees and San Jose Action Statement, which was under President Obama, these different agreements that we had actually come to, we reneged. And one of the most challenging things for me to see was the Attorney General. Now, again, this is like, what was that? When it first started to happen, it was like 2017 or something, 2018. The Attorney General up there saying, you know, you have to respect the laws because of Romans 8 not even thinking through the fact that like there is a long history of disobeying unjust laws that even the black church in the United States really during the civil rights movement actually really highlighted. And at the same time, those new policies were actually going back on previous policies. And unfortunately, the evangelical community in the political sense, unfortunately, too often sided with that administration, which I think is a really travesty. And that's again, why I make that delineation. So I actually just taught on that with my students last week so that they would actually see, hey, these are things that we need to take into account when we're talking about at-risk kids. And this is a global issue that's right on our doorstep. And we have to be people that are at the forefront to advocate for their rights. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get your perspective on intercountry adoption, which is often an outcome of missionary work and is facilitated by missionary organizations and systems And it's something that many in those communities are driven to do as an expression of their their faith. How does this intersect with your drive to keep kids out of orphanages and, and in their families, especially when you yourself have an adopted child from Tanzania? Yeah. Uh, as far as for me, particularly how it drives, it, it doesn't really drive, to be honest. I think that solutions need to be indigenous. And even for you know our family in particular, you know, it's funny, another person I talked to today, she's not a Christian, but a friend and a colleague that's in Tanzania, they've also adopted. And she is uh, one of the few people that kind of understands our situation from a technical standpoint, because Tanzania doesn't do international adoption. Unlike some other East African countries like Ethiopia and Uganda, they actually have done a fairly successful job in actually maintaining that. As you are well aware, intercountry adoption is rife with corruption. It is a last resort. When we adopted, we adopted as long-term residents of Tanzania. And we continued to live there up until our previous organization downsized. But even now we remain in contact with with our son's uh, biological family, but we adopted domestically. So as far as inter-country adoption, when you look at cases like what happened in Guatemala, what happened in Ethiopia, where, you know, there's this big, you know, again, getting back to that industrial complex, and you're looking at these situations where you have these well-off Westerners that are willing to pay Forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to adopt a child that's, you know, healthy, a different ethnicity, and under the age of five, you're basically asking for corruption. And unfortunately, that has happened. So, as far as like my drive to get kids back into family, uh, intercountry adoption is not something that I personally promote. I do think that it's important for us to, when we think through alternative care, there's different forms of alternative care, of course. And unfortunately, sometimes people actually use that term and say that orphanages aren't alternative care. They actually are, because alternative care means that it's something that is alternative to their family of origin. 
So what we want to promote when we say we want alternative family care, what we're saying is for whatever reason that kid's not able to safely go back to their family of origin. So we should look for alternative family placement for that child. And, and unfortunately, sometimes people get their terms a little sideways, but the main thing is kids need to be reunified when there are issues. Poverty is, is one of the reasons, but it's also an exacerbating reason. It's like always poverty plus something else, you know, or poverty that led to this conflict or, you know, what have you, but prioritizing reunification. And especially, you know, if we, again, look at what are indigenous solutions, one of the huge benefits in a place like sub-Saharan Africa is the fact that the family units and the village units, which are more traditional, admittedly, are set up in collectivist ways. So you can actually find more solutions just looking within the lineage of that child to find a safe family placement. So I actually disagree on a contextual standpoint when people say that kinship care is a form of alternative family care. Because the truth of the matter is, like if I speak with a Tanzanian friend, they'll say, how many kids do you have? And if their brother or sister passed away, they'll start naming off their nieces and nephews as their own children, right? Or when my child is born, they're born with multiple fathers because they have Baba Mzazi, which is their father parent. And then they have Baba Kubwa, which is my older brother, Baba Mdogo, my little brother. You know, my wife has her sisters. They're all Mama Kubwa, you know. So actually a child should be born with a different kind of perspective around family that actually should make family placements easier to do. So I look first there. If hopefully the kid can go back to their parents, but if not, it's still their family of origin if they can go with their aunt or their uncle or their grandparent or what have you. And then you're going to have a lot fewer of those kids that need to go into alternative family care, meaning that we've developed a foster care adoption, which unfortunately is very much lacking as far as like the systems piece within a lot of these countries. And it really falls on the nonprofit to develop those things for their given context. And some organizations do that really well, but it's a big ball to kind of push up a hill. So as far as intercountry adoption, specific for solutions for addressing family separation, it's not something that I recommend just because of all the downfalls personally. And, and then there's the adoption piece, which I assume you'll ask about next. That's just kind of a big ball uh, in and of itself, of course. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I think there are the obvious issues around intercountry adoption, which you've looked at and talked about, which is the economic issues, the corruption, child trafficking. But there is another piece around the effect of removal from family and culture and country on children that are adopted by families of different backgrounds. And, you know, we're hearing more and more from from those children as they grow into adults. And in fact, we've had on this podcast a woman called Linnell Long who talks a lot about what it's like to be adopted internationally and the systems and structures that allowed her adoption but also have perpetuated the harms that that adoption caused for her. And so I, I guess I'm interested in, yes, you you had a domestic adoption and a few times through this podcast, you've talked about your your child's biological family. So there are connections there and you may not want to answer this and I will totally understand if you don't, but if you know that child's biological family, why not support reunification? Why continue with adoption? And I'm, I'm looking at this through the lens of another previous guest who I also know you know, Jessica Davis, who returned her child to her biological family once she found out she had one. 
Yeah, and I've actually interacted with Linnell a little bit and, and know Jessica as well. So really good people there. I think one significant difference for me personally compared with Jessica was Jessica and Adam were living in the States. They weren't living there. Unfortunately, our son, and I want to be sensitive to his story, of course, he had been in a children's home for his essentially his entire childhood. And he was in early elementary at that point. Unfortunately, the separation had been quite extensive. And because international adoption was never on the radar of the organization, he was separated for other reasons. And unfortunately, many of those within his peer group at the children's home continue to remain there. And now they're in later elementary, soon to be in secondary school. So for us, it was actually really important for him to know his village, know where he came from. And it's actually a really beautiful thing. Sadly, his grandmother passed away not too long ago. But one of the most precious things was actually drawing that connection because he had been separated from them for so long. And for our specific situation, you know, even as the family was multi-faith, you know, some were Christian, some were Muslims, or my family and my wife and I and our kids, we grew up in the Christian tradition. The beautiful thing was seeing the grandmother say, this isn't this Mzungu family taking my child. This is this family joining our family. And even though we live in different places now, we maintain those contacts, right? Over WhatsApp and, you know, all of these different things. And, you know, we haven't been back in the States for that long. And most of the time that we've been back, COVID has been uh, restricting. (laughs) But, um, you know, when we visit Tanzania again, like he'll be able to continue those relationships that he really didn't start forming until after the placement into our family out of the children's home. And yet at the same time, it's not easy and it's not easy for him. It's not easy for him. You know, as we are back in the States now, I literally, I went to get something notarized and I noticed, oh, this is a black owned business. And I'm like asking this African-American gentleman, like, hey, where can I get connected with African-American, you know, just so my son can develop more of those relationships. And, and he's befriended a friend at his junior high that is a person of color and actually also a Muslim, you know, so we actually encourage that even in the context that we're at. And even as we unfortunately moved back to the States, which was not personally on our radar, it was a challenge, but also something that his family understood. Now, why we didn't move to reunification, that door, unfortunately for him, after being institutionalized for so long, didn't appear to be open. That just became very clear. And again, I want to be sensitive to his story, but it was something that we actually did discuss. And again, unfortunately, if the orphanage that he had been in actually did appropriate gatekeeping, I think that he should not have been there in the first place, or at least only been there for a very short stint. And that would have been a better situation. So the thing with adoption, which is complex, is there's always some sort of difficulty before that. Like like adoption is sometimes not done right. And I fully understand and agree with that. And at the same time, there is something that's going on that's leading to that situation that needs to be corrected. And if we could actually prevent, then we wouldn't actually need alternative family care of any type. So there's a lot to that. But yeah, that's at least our story. And again, I'm just one individual, but I would say, generally speaking, reunification needs to be prioritized. Um, And at the same time, we can't only focus on reunification to the detriment of the fact that some kids can't safely reunify. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brandon, I want to draw the conversation back out to a, a much broader perspective. What 
do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Oh, that's a big question. And I actually knew it was coming and now I have to actually think. (laughs) I think I would circle back to this issue of, of kindness. I feel like a lot of this is exacerbated by what we see on social media. And there's a lot of justice issues. I certainly think about environment and and just a lot of our short-sightedness on environmental issues. I think of our own sector and care reform and why are we allowing kids to perpetually be separated from appropriate care settings. You know, I could think through a lot of those justice issues that are really significant and, and could easily answer your question. But I think that there should be a more fundamental thing, which is why can't we be kind to one another. I don't know. You know, I I think it would be easy in a lot of ways for you and I who have different views to get onto a podcast and point out all the things that we disagree on, or we could just have an honest and deep conversation and just show kindness and just say, wow, okay, I hadn't thought of that. Like, oh, that's a really good question. I have to think about that more. That kindness would actually go a lot further. And, And that's not a justice issue per se, but I think it can be applied to all of these different things. You know what I mean? And I think anytime you go online, you can see just how detrimental it is that people are not maintaining the value of kindness. And I think that that's leading to an exorbitant amount of destruction, not only in our relationships, but also in how we talk about policies and how we talk about maintaining people's rights. I think that there's a lot to human rights violations. And I just think kindness is a significant thing. Yeah. And and our environment and animals and our planet as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I think I could probably say the same thing I was just saying, but I think I would tell them to look out for children, to make sure that kids are receiving their rights. I know that even that, the conversation around human rights and and child rights and the UNCRC, that's a pretty long conversation and there's some cultural questions and kind of, you know, what went into making that document and so forth. But again, even within each of these different uh, countries and their own contexts, you can see when a child's being treated well and when a child's not being treated well, even just according to that own context of that, of that country or that community. That's what I would tell them because the effects of adverse childhood experiences and not only how detrimental it is to that kid in their childhood and in their adolescence, but the ways that those things carry on with those children for the rest of their lives is so substantial that I think it's worth everybody recognizing that in this more vulnerable developmental stage, kids really need to be treated well and, and to be treated in accordance with their human dignity and their rights. So as a child advocate, that's what I would uh, go towards. Perfect. Brandon, where is your favorite place on earth? Right now, Moshi, Tanzania, <laughs> the place that I used to live. And I was uh, talking with a colleague earlier today that's also in Tanzania and just reflecting on how much I wish that uh, we could be back there. I would love for my, uh, my son, but not only my son, my, my biological children as well, who called it home. Uh, to continue to just glean from just wonderful people that we got to interact with there and, you know, just walk around those uh, streets. And I don't want to be romanticized about the work that we were doing there. We have flaws and foibles and so forth, but the people are just wonderful and, and just absolutely loved and valued them. So that, that's where I would be right now. If, if I could be. What book are you reading right now? Oh, I love reading books. Uh, Right now I am reading Across That Bridge by uh, Congressman John Lewis, who sadly passed away last year. 
when the George Floyd killing happened last year, I said that I was not going to read any books by white men this year. And my most recent one I'm reading is, is yeah, by John Lewis. It's been eye-opening just because of the race conversation happening in my country right now. A lot of residuals, but also just current stuff from all the things that Americans have gotten wrong around race relations and um, not honoring Black and Indigenous populations. And I really think that Congressman John Lewis identifies a lot of what we could learn from the civil rights uh, in the 50s and 60s, but then also, you know, what could be next for our country. So, yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. Excellent. What about podcasts? What are you listening to at the moment? I recently started listening to Global Dispatches. I'm a big podcaster and I actually gave them up for Lent uh, so that I could focus more time on on family and prayer. <laughs> so I, I just now uh, started listening to again, but Global Dispatches has been a really good one as that is an interest of mine, you know, just kind of learn about situations that are happening throughout the world. You know, I was listening to one on Myanmar or Central African Republic. Um, international affairs is really interesting to me and um, seeing how can we actually build peace in these different countries and what's the role of INGOs, what's the role of government, what human rights abuses are taking place and how can they be addressed. All of that stuff is really interesting to me. So that would be one. As we were talking about faith, there's some really good ones out there also. I, I know this is not a faith-based audience, but um, Holy Post podcast is is a good one to kind of get into issues of faith and and also podcasts that they haven't released in a while, but I've really enjoyed called This Cultural Moment. But uh, yeah, those are some of the podcasts, but I listen to a ton, including yours, Lee. (laughs) Thank you. Brandon, I really, really appreciate the time that you've taken to chat with me today. I know there's been some tricky, some tricky questions and some tricky conversations, but I really value your openness to engaging in them with me. I think these type of conversations are really valuable for both people of faith and people that are not of faith. And I know I get a lot out of having these open and honest conversations in a safe space to talk about issues where, yes, as you mentioned before, we may not come from the same perspective, but I think we can find a shared understanding of each other's perspective. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. No, this has been a joy and a delight. I appreciate the work that you do. And, you know, the opportunity to show kindness in a conversation where we are getting into difficult things. I think there's a lot of value in that. You know, I recognize that there's a lot still there to kind of dig into on these different things. So uh, hope for future conversations with uh, with other people that, that also have the same concerns. Absolutely. And just before we go, could you tell people where to find out more about One Million Home? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. One Million Home, we essentially operate as a social venture and we are kind of work to build the capacity of small to medium sized nonprofits that are focused on getting kids back into family. It's a grassroots approach to care reform through local practitioners. So you can just find out One Million Home at onemillionhome.com and you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't do social media anymore. I have profiles there, but I only do LinkedIn, to be honest, <laughs> just because of the kindness thing. At any rate, I uh, would love to hear from anybody. You can definitely find me through the website. Excellent. Thanks, Brandon. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders 
and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.